Well, I'm David Tate, and this is part six of our Gospel of John series, wherein we are walking verse by verse by verse through the Gospel of John and trying to get as much as we possibly can out of the fourth Gospel. Uh, Whether that be from an evangelistic perspective, an apologetic perspective, an applicational perspective, a literary perspective, we're looking at this from all angles and hoping to draw as much as we possibly can out of it, so long as it is honest and truthful and glorifying to God. And our goal in this study is the same as the goal of the gospel itself. Uh, I'm hoping that we will have a better grasp of who Jesus is in order that we may believe in him and in order that we can go out and show people who Jesus is so that they can believe in him as well. Uh, And so, in that way, I believe that the goal of this study is very similar to the goal of the gospel itself, as John himself states in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so, in that being said, This is probably going to be a fairly long lesson, so I'm going to pray for us so that we can just hop right in. Dear God, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for your word. And thank you for another day wherein we can go through it so that we can know you more. And as we go into this study, I pray that you will govern my lips so that I will only say what you would want me to say. And I pray that you will open up the ears of all listening so that they may hear the truth of your word that they may believe in the truth of your gospel, and that they may find life in the truth of your Son. God, we love you so much, and we recognize that our gratitude for what you've done, you are doing and you are due, could never exceed the gratitude that you deserve. And so even as we go into this study, help us become more grateful for who you are and what you're doing. Lord, we love you. And we want to love you more. As we go into this study, help that be our chief ambition. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So today we are continuing on in the narrative of the Gospel of John, which we started with last week. And we're picking up in chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. So like I said, in the last passage, uh, in the last lesson, we were introduced to the narrative of the Gospel of John. In the first video, we did an introduction to the Gospel where we didn't even go into the text. In the second three lessons, we actually dove into the prologue of the Gospel of John, wherein the author is laying the groundwork for all that is to follow. And then last week, we were introduced to John the Baptist himself in the narrative of the Gospel's text. And in that story, we actually had this interrogation scene 
right? So in this interrogation, we have these priests and these Levites who came from Jerusalem, and they come up to John, and their main purpose is to figure out who he is, what he's doing, and why he's doing it, right? And so they come up to John the Baptist, and they say, who are you? And John the Baptist replies, I am not the Christ. And they say, okay, if you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? He says, I'm not Elijah. And they say, all right, if you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? And he says, I'm not the prophet. And they say, okay, well, we need to go back to Jerusalem and we need answers. So we're going to need you to tell us who you claim to be. If you're not the Christ, and if you're not Elijah, and if you're not the prophet, then who do you claim to be? And John the Baptist replied to them and he said, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And they said, okay, well, if you're but a voice, crying out in the wilderness, then what gives you the right to be baptizing people in water? If you're not Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then why do you baptize people with water? And then John replied to them, and he said, I am but baptizing with water, but there is one amongst you, one whom you do not know, who is coming, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then John ended by saying that he was not even worthy to untie this person's sandals. And so in this interrogation scene, John turns to these priests and these Levites, and he tells them, you don't have to worry about me. You don't have to worry about who I am. Who you need to worry about is the one who is coming after me. Because the one who is coming after me is far greater than I am. I am but a voice who exists to make him known. He is amongst you, and you do not know him. But I am here to make him known. And in this passage that we read today, John is going to make him known. We have talked about the fact that the gospel of John is a gospel of testimonies, where the author, who is also named John, the author is presenting us with testimony after testimony after testimony that he believes point to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he wants us to take those testimonies in order to believe in Jesus. And John the Baptist is the first of those witnesses who's giving that testimony. And so we read the day after the interrogation, right? The next day he, John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so I just want to set the scene for you. Right? So this is the day after the interrogation. John has returned once again to Bethany across the Jordan. And as he's right here, he's probably baptizing people in water. He's probably preaching some sermons. He's calling people to repentance. And then all of a sudden, a man starts walking towards him. And John the Baptist lays his eyes on him. And his breath catches in his chest. He hushes everybody. And he looks. He raises up his hand and he points. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the scene that we have stumbled onto today. The day before, he had told the Pharisees and the Levites and the priests that there was one standing amongst them that they did not know who was greater than he. Now, that man stands before them. And before we actually begin to break this down, I just want us to notice the subtlety 
with which the author John introduces Jesus. Because I said we were going to look at this book from a literary perspective as well. And if you remember in the prologue, the way that the author John introduced Jesus was as the eternal, uncreated, self-existent word becoming flesh. It was God taking upon flesh to dwell with men. It was this epic story wherein the eternal God stepped into finite creation to introduce himself and to dwell with man in the most intimate of ways. And it was presented in the most epic way and manner possible. Yet whenever we get to the narrative, notice how subtle it is. John the Baptist is preaching. He looks up and he sees Jesus walking down the road. And he's like, behold, there he is. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's so, so subtle. And the thing that sticks out to me there is the fact that that shows how awesome God is. Jesus could have come in with fireworks. He could have come in and all the people been applauding him as he walked up. But instead, he walks in and he just fits in with the crowd so much that John the Baptist has to point him out amidst the crowd. John has to look up and say, hey guys, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's nothing about him that sticks out. He's just there. He fits in. Nobody just looked to the left and was like, hey, look, it's the creator of the universe. Nobody did that. There was nobody just walking around being like, hey, look, that looks like God over there. No. God became flesh. He became one of us. He was a regular man by all appearances. So that John the Baptist has to look at him and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as we're going to see in this text, John himself didn't even know that's who he was until a certain moment in his life. And we're going to deal with that today. But John himself is going to admit, I thought he was a regular guy too. Because by all appearances, Jesus was a regular person. That's how humble Jesus was. The sovereign king of all glory, the sovereign God of the universe, he stepped into flesh. And he was of such humble state that there was nothing about him that would cause a man to turn his head. Instead, you have to have some preacher on the banks of the Jordan River point to him and say, hey guys, there he is. And even then, they won't grasp the full extent of who he is. And I don't even think John the Baptist yet fully understood the full extent of who Jesus was. My point is simply that he was such a humble man. He didn't stick out. He was just walking. The prologue presents the epic word that is stepping into creation. Yet when we introduce to Jesus here, he's just a man walking down the road. It's amazing. But John sees this man and he reaches out his hand and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here we're introduced to the first of seven titles that are given to Jesus in this first chapter of John. As we'll learn, the the author John really likes his sevens. Uh, Here we're going to have seven titles of Jesus. Um, Throughout the gospel, we're going to have seven particular signs that John believes points towards the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And then we're also going to have seven I am statements from Jesus, wherein he says, I am blank, 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 and is himself declaring to be God made flesh. Right? So the author John loves sevens. And here we're introduced to our first list of sevens, which are seven titles for Jesus that we receive in John chapter 1. And the titles are these. Lamb of God, Rabbi, Messiah, Son of God, King of Israel, Son of Man, and then one of my favorite, Him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of Joseph. But here we're introduced to the first one. The Lamb of God. And so, being the fact that this is a title that is given to Jesus, I think it merits some discussion. What do we mean by the Lamb of God? And to answer that question, I think we have to break this down into three categories. What Christians typically mean by the term Lamb of God. What John the Baptist likely meant by the term Lamb of God. And what John the author wants to mean and wants us to understand by the term Lamb of God. Because those are three distinct things, and I do believe that they are all connected, and I believe they point towards the same truth. But I want to discuss them individually so that we can fully understand what is meant by this term. So let's begin by talking about what Christians mean when they hear the term Lamb of God. And the reason I want to talk about this is because as Christians, we often take this phrase for granted because it saturates our culture and we speak of Jesus as the Lamb of God so often that sometimes we forget the meaning behind it. Right? So we have so many songs where we have Jesus talked about as the Lamb of God who died in our place. We have so many just phrases that we use. We talk about Jesus as the Lamb of God. We see that on posters. We see it in artwork. We see the idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and sometimes we take it for granted so much that we don't even stop to think what it means, right? We do that with a lot of things. Sometimes we can just become numb to the idea of a phrase or something like that that we don't even stop to think what it means. Like whenever we talk about, oh, when I say, oh, that's my kryptonite, right? You understand that I'm saying that's my weakness, but you don't necessarily make the correlation the fact that I am referencing the weakness of Superman. You just think, oh, that's his kryptonite. That's his weakness. Because sometimes we hear the phrase so often that our minds become numb to it. The same is true with the Lamb of God. We can hear that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and we might just correlate those phrases together without actually stopping to think what it means. Another issue is that sometimes we hear the term Lamb of God, and assume that everybody in all contexts has always meant the phrase in the same exact way. But I can guarantee you that isn't true, because when we hear Lamb of God, we immediately think Jesus. If you went back to the time of the Exodus with Moses, and you said the term Lamb of God, he would probably think of something very different, primarily because Jesus hadn't even been born yet. But there's also other contextual clues that would mean that he probably thought of something different. And so, let's start by talking about what Christians mean whenever we use the phrase Lamb of God. I do believe it is a correct understanding. I just want to explain it so that we can have that understanding for ourselves. So, we understand the term Lamb of God through the context of Old Testament Mosaic sacrifices. And what I mean by that is this. Through Moses, God revealed that sin and separation from him could only be dealt with or removed by the payment of a blood sacrifice. So in Leviticus chapter 17, we read this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I, God, have given it 
for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So in Leviticus, in the Mosaic law given by Moses to the people of Israel, God specifies that there is this interesting connection between blood and the forgiveness of sins. Because he says life is in the blood. And so he makes this connection where he says, you're going to have to give animal sacrifices in order to atone for your sins. But there's still an issue. Because at the same time, God made it clear that the blood of animals was not sufficient to actually take away man's sins. What we read is this in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. So what God is saying through Isaiah is he says, these sacrifices aren't enough. You can give me your sacrifices, but that doesn't even stop the fact that you're sinning. Because the thing is, sometimes those sacrifices are given to justify sin. And sometimes you don't give them with the right heart. And so these sacrifices aren't enough. Plus, they're just animals. And so we see this issue that arises in the Old Testament that for some reason, the sacrifices don't do the full job. A way you could word it is this way. Animal sacrifices could atone for sin, but they couldn't atone for the sinner. They could forgive the sin, but they couldn't make the sinner righteous. They could deal with the sin on an individual level, but they couldn't change the fact that man at his very core is a sinner. There was this prevailing issue that needed to be fixed. Man needed a bigger and better sacrifice, a sacrifice that didn't have to be repeated, a sacrifice that could last for all time. And so we believe that Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection what no bull or lamb or goat could do. That's where we get the idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He paid for our sins. We read this in Hebrews chapter 10. And by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the author of Hebrews is contrasting the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, with the New Testament, New Covenant promises of Jesus Christ. He says the priests daily have to offer animal sacrifices. Jesus, once and for all, he laid his life down. And his life was so high a price, it was so valuable, that he was able to die once and for all and atone for the sins of man. And now he can just rest. He sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes on our behalf. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices daily. He already paid the price. That's what the author of Hebrews says. And the way Paul puts it is this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So Paul says that in Jesus, 
we have been made righteous. Jesus did what the offerings of bulls and lambs and goats could not do. They could deal with the sin, they couldn't deal with the sinner. Jesus came, he dealt not only with the sin, but he dealt with the sinner himself, so that in him we can become the righteousness of God. This is called the divine exchange. Jesus came down and took upon our punishment so that we could take upon his glory. That's what happened. And then he would be glorified even more because through what he did, he not only brought us up to heaven with him, but he is now enthroned even higher and more glorious than ever before because now he has a creation who can recognize what he's done and who he is. And they can appreciate his grace that much more. That's what we have here, and that's what Christians mean when we refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb who died in our place. He is the chief Lamb, the ultimate Lamb, the one who did what no regular Lamb could do. That's what Christians mean. But what does John the Baptist mean whenever he refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God? Are we to assume that whenever John the Baptist looks at Jesus walking down the street and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that he understood that Jesus was ultimately going to die on a cross for the sins of mankind, I don't think that John the Baptist fully understood that. I honestly don't think that anybody fully understood that until after it happened. Jesus would tell people, and it seemed like their opinion of who the Messiah would be seemed to contradict what he was saying, and so they just thought he was afraid or something, and just kind of was like, Jesus, no, that's not going to happen. And then only after the crucifixion and resurrection did people fully grasp what he did. I don't think John the Baptist fully understood the full ramifications of what Jesus would do. However, I do want to give a caveat in the fact that John did understand more than most people seem to understand, as we can see in his comment here. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he understood that Jesus' main purpose was to deal with the sins of the world, which is leaps and bounds ahead of what most people thought the Messiah would do. The Messiah, from most people's perspective, was just this conquering king who was mainly dealing with political stuff. John, to his credit, understood that Jesus had come to deal with the sins of the world. I just don't know if he necessarily understood how that would happen or in what way that would happen. Because, in many ways, John the Baptist did seem to maintain a view of the Messiah that was very similar to the prevailing view of those around him, where he did still seem to think of the Messiah as this conquering king figure. So, unlike most, John had a better understanding of who Jesus was, but at the same time, uh, he didn't understand the full extent of who Jesus was. And the reason I say that is, if you go to Matthew chapter 11, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this one passage from Matthew 11, where we get an idea of how John the Baptist viewed Jesus. And so this is during the time when John the Baptist is in prison. Um, John, in the Gospel of John, we don't actually read about that. But John the Baptist eventually goes to prison, and this is what we read from his time there. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, 
Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So we have this story where John the Baptist in prison sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? And some commentators would view this as John the Baptist doubting that Jesus is the Messiah. I have a tough time viewing it in that way, mainly because I believe that this passage in the Gospel of John shows us that John the Baptist had no doubt that Jesus was the Messiah because he had confirmation from God himself that Jesus was who he claims to be. So in fact, the passage that we are going through in the Gospel of John helps inform me of how to understand John the Baptist's question in Matthew. They go together in my perspective. To me, it actually seems like John the Baptist is simply confused about what the Messiah's mission is. So it's not necessarily that he didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. Instead, he's sending his disciples to ask him, hey, you know, like, it's like a call to action, right? He's saying, hey, aren't, like, are you the one who's to come or should we wait for another? The implication is, aren't you the one to come? Shouldn't you be doing something? And I think you can understand this perspective like this. John the Baptist is the herald of the Messiah. His purpose was to set everything up for the arrival of Jesus Christ. So now John the Baptist finds himself in prison, and he's thinking, wait a second. If you're the Messiah, that means you are the most powerful person in the entire universe. And if I am your right-hand man, what am I doing in prison? I don't think it's a pride thing. I think it's just a genuine question. I think that John the Baptist has spent time in prison, and he's saying, man, I'm rotting away in prison, but you're the Messiah. Aren't you the one to come? Isn't it time to take action? Let's take the Romans out. Let's do something. Let's, let's cause a roar. John the Baptist was proclaiming that the Messiah would come to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I don't think that he understood that the fire part would come later. I think he thought that whenever Jesus came, his primary purpose was the judgment of mankind. In that way, he would be dealing with the sins of the world. I think that John the Baptist was just confused. And that's why Jesus' response in that passage actually is so amazing. Because see, what Jesus responds to him in that passage, it not only affirms to John that he is the Messiah in the event that he was doubting, but it actually clarifies what the Messiah has come to do. Because this is what Jesus had responded. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, are you the one to come or should we wait for another? And this is what Jesus had said. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So that's what Jesus responds. Now let me tell you what he was quoting. Because in Jesus' response, he was actually quoting the Old Testament passages in Isaiah, where Isaiah is detailing the Messiah that is to come. And this is what Isaiah has to say. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And then he says again later on, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So whenever John's disciples come to Jesus and they say, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? Jesus replies, look at what you see. I'm doing all the things that the Messiah is supposed to do, aren't I? And he lists out examples. So he says, yes, I am the Messiah. But then I want you to notice some of the things that he leaves out. From those passages that I just quoted, you'll notice that there are two particular things that John might have wanted to hear that Jesus leaves out. Jesus does not say proclaiming liberty to the captives, and he does not say the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So John the Baptist is saying, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, why am I in prison? If I was your herald, if I was the one who set you up, what am I doing here? Couldn't I be going out and heralding you more? What am I doing in prison? And Jesus says, I am the Messiah, but I'm not doing it exactly how you think I'm going to do it. He leaves out the fact that the prisoners will be freed and that their shackles will be taken off. So essentially, he seems to be telling John, you're going to die in prison because my, what I'm doing here is a little bit different than what you expected. John was out here proclaiming to people the Messiah is coming to baptize with Holy Spirit and with fire. Yet he looks at the work of Jesus and Jesus is performing miracles. He's baptizing them with grace. Where's the fire? Well, Jesus says the fire is not coming yet. And he seems to be telling John, you're going to die in prison. But he also says in there, the dead are raised up. So you're going to die in prison, but don't worry, John. The dead will be raised. And I believe that John the Baptist, in his humility, would have accepted that. Because he would have understood, okay, if that's what it's supposed to do, that's fine. Um, but I say all this because I want us to understand that I don't think that John the Baptist fully understood what Jesus' purpose was whenever he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had a better understanding than most but he didn't understand Jesus perfectly. And so, that entire context having been given, what did John the Baptist mean when he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? What did he mean by that? Well, he might have actually been taking this concept from different Jewish texts from that surrounding time period. Uh, and these texts, they're not the authoritative word of God, Right? But they might have informed the culture around him, kind of like if I make a reference to Superman, or if I were to make a reference to a popular sermon that people talk about. Right? So I'm not necessarily quoting something authoritative, but I'm quoting something that is culturally significant in a way that whenever I quote it, you understand the implications of what I'm saying. For instance, take this example from the book of First Enoch, which was written during the 1st or 2nd century B.C. It's a Jewish text. It says this, Then, behold, lambs were born from those snow-white sheep, 
And they began to open their eyes and see, and cried aloud to the sheep. I kept seeing till those lambs grew horns, but the ravens crushed their horns. Then I kept seeing till one great horn sprouted on one of those sheep, and he opened their eyes, and they had vision in them. And their eyes were opened. Those ravens gather and battle with him, the horned ram, and seek to remove his horn, but without any success. That's from First Enoch chapter 90. And what we have here is we have the author of Enoch describing some weird vision wherein he sees a lamb arising from a bunch of other lambs and a bunch of things are attacking him and waging war against this lamb, but this lamb has this horn of authority. Right? So they're attacking this lamb with the authority, but the lamb is not being destroyed. Even though everything's coming against him, he's winning the war. Or, take these texts from the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, which is a non-canonical text written most likely during the first quarter of the second century B.C. From the Testament of Joseph, we read this. And I saw in the midst of the horns a virgin wearing a many-colored garment, and from her went forth a lamb, and on his right was, as it were, a lion, and all the beasts and the reptiles rushed against him, and the lamb overcame them and destroyed them. So now we have this idea of this lamb who's born of a virgin, who, once again, all these animals are attacking the lamb, yet the lamb overcomes. Or go to the Testament of Benjamin. We read this. For Joseph also besought our father that he would pray for his brethren. This is talking about Joseph from Genesis, right? For Joseph also besought our father that he would pray for his brethren, that the Lord would not impute to them as sin whatever evil they had done unto him. And thus Jacob cried out, My good child, thou hast prevailed over the bowels of thy father Jacob. And he embraced him and kissed him for two hours, saying, In thee shall be fulfilled the prophecy of heaven concerning the Lamb of God and Savior of the world, and that a blameless one shall be delivered up for lawless men, and a sinless one shall die for the ungodly men in the blood of the covenant for salvation of the Gentiles and of Israel, and shall destroy Belial and his servants. So right here, we have this description of Jacob talking to Joseph, and he's saying there is this lamb who is going to come, the sinless one is going to die in the place of many, right? And so we have different contexts in which to understand the idea of the Lamb of God. This one text in the Testament of Benjamin is very different from the others. This one's talking about a sinless one dying in the place. These other ones are talking about this conquering king. So we almost have the idea of, once again, the Lamb of God being this Messiah figure. And when we talked about the Messiah in the last lesson, we talked about how there were two prevailing ideas, There is the conquering king Messiah, and there's a suffering servant Messiah, and it seems like there are two different concepts of who this Messiah would be. And it seems like for John the Baptist, most likely he would have landed on the conquering king side. So yes, he believed that Jesus was going to take away the sins of the world, but how he was going to do it was through a baptism of fire. There is going to be judgment, and we do believe that that day is yet coming. So in a way, John the Baptist is not wrong. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus will come and do that. But in his first coming, Jesus was not primarily concerned with judgment. He was concerned with salvation. And those who rejected his salvation judged themselves. That's what we're going to see in the Gospel of John. 
But right here, I don't think that John the Baptist fully understood who Jesus was. I think he might have likely been making a reference to the cultural understanding of the Lamb of God, this conquering king, the Lamb with the great horn who was coming to wage war and who would win the war. I think that might have been his understanding, mainly because that text in Matthew makes me think that he didn't fully understand what Jesus' role was. So, John the Baptist then is declaring Jesus the authoritative king who has arrived to lay waste to the nations and judge all people for their sins. From the synoptic gospels, we get a picture of John the Baptist who largely sees Jesus as a figure coming to wage judgment. Uh, And so I just wanted to give that for clarity so that whenever you get to that chapter in Matthew, you won't be confused and say, why is John the Baptist doubting Jesus? I don't think he's doubting Jesus. I think he just wants Jesus to clarify what his purpose is. And then once Jesus clarifies it, I think John accepts it. He says, okay, fair enough. I understand now. We're good. Um, But that being said, I don't think that John the Baptist understood Lamb of God in the same way that we typically do. Which leads us to our third question. How did John, the author, want us to understand the term Lamb of God? Because that is important. From other parts in the gospel, we know that the author John often quotes people because he recognizes their statements to be truer than that person at first realized. In John chapter 11, we read this. This is an example, right? So John quotes the high priest Caiaphas as saying this, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Right? So the high priest Caiaphas is saying it's better that Jesus die for the sake of everybody else, lest he lead a rebellion and everybody else perish in his place. Right? So it's better for one man to die than for everybody. And that's a person using that statement to justify killing Jesus. John, however, is going to take that and demonstrate that what Caiaphas said is true. It is better for one to die in the place of many than that all should die. And that is what Jesus came to do. He came to die for the sake of many. So what Caiaphas said was true, but it was also truer than he realized. Caiaphas was using it to justify killing Jesus. We believe that it was a justify, it it was a means to justify Jesus' sacrifice. Because Jesus was not ultimately killed. He gave up his life willingly, right? So we have this example here where John admits to the fact that he is taking one statement and finding more truth in it than the person at first realized. And so I have to ask, what does John the author want us to take from the term Lamb of God? Because he says that he has handpicked specific moments from the life of Jesus, and he believes that these testify to who Jesus is, and he wants us to believe in him. And for some reason, He wants us to remember this moment from John the Baptist. He doesn't start the story where the other gospels start John the Baptist's story. Instead, he starts right here with John the Baptist holding out his hand and saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that makes me wonder, what does John the author want us to get from this? And the significance, I think, is this. When the author is writing this gospel... He is viewing Jesus from a post-resurrection perspective that John the Baptist did not have when he declared these words. 
That is, not only has Jesus come to take away the sins of the world through judgment and destruction, as John the Baptist probably intended it, that is yet to come, but I believe that John the author wants us to understand that Jesus has arrived to take away the sins of the world by serving as the sacrifice for all mankind. I believe that what John the Baptist means is yet to come. I believe that what John the author means is the same as how we as Christians often interpret it today. And to prove that, I want to reference three key passages that John probably has in mind that motivate him to quote John the Baptist. And those three passages are this. Firstly, Genesis chapter 22, wherein we see that Jesus is the lamb provided by God. Uh, Because if you remember that story, that is the story where God tests Abraham by asking him to give up his only son Isaac that God had given him. But before Abraham can do it, God stops him and makes the promise that he will give the own sacrifice. He will provide the sacrifice in the future, right? And then we see the ram in the thickets, and that's where Abraham names the place Yahweh Yireh, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. The Lord will see to it. And so right here, I think that John, quoting John the Baptist, probably has that passage in mind. Jesus is the lamb that God provided. He is the sacrifice provided by God. But secondly, I think that he might have in mind Exodus chapter 12. And Jesus is the Passover lamb, right? Because if you remember the story of the Passover, whenever God was freeing the people of Israel from Egypt, he sent 10 plagues upon Egypt in order to motivate Pharaoh to let the people go and primarily to show his sovereignty and his glory before the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. And the final plague involved in that whole series of events was the death of every firstborn living in Egypt. And the only way to avoid that plague was by the slaughtering of an innocent, unblemished lamb and pasting its blood onto the doorframe of the house. And if the blood was on the doorframe, then the Spirit of God would pass over the household. That's where we get the term Passover. The Spirit of God would pass over the household and that child would be saved. And so great was this moment, so important was this Passover event with the painting of the blood of the lamb, and then they would go eat the lamb during the dinner. So important was this, and so great was the freedom that resulted from this plague, because this was the tenth and final plague, and this is finally what got Pharaoh to say, let go, leave Egypt. So important was this moment, that God commissioned the people of Israel to celebrate the Passover every single year going forward. And Jewish people still celebrate Passover to this day because it's a celebration of freedom and forgiveness of sins and avoiding death and the wrath of God. So I think John the author chooses to quote John the Baptist because he also has the Passover lamb in mind. Whenever John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, I don't think he fully understood who Jesus was in the same extent as we now can with a post-resurrection perspective of Jesus. But I think that John the author had that perspective. And so he sees what John the Baptist said, and he says, You don't even realize how true that was. Not only was Jesus the Lamb and the sacrifice provided by God, but Jesus was the Passover Lamb. He is the Lamb through whom we avoid death. He is the Lamb through whom the wrath of God passes over us. 
But there's also a third passage, I think, that John the author has in mind when he quotes this. Jesus is the lamb that is led to the slaughter in Isaiah chapter 53. In the final servant song of Isaiah, we read about a suffering servant of the Lord who is compared to a lamb. We read this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And what we read about in Isaiah 53 is one of the most remarkable passages where you can read it to people who know nothing about Christianity, yet they can hear it and they can say, well, that's obviously talking about Jesus, yet it was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And it says that there is this man, there is this servant who is going to be like a lamb led to the slaughter. And through him, we will achieve the forgiveness of sins. And I think this is the third passage that John the, uh, John the author had in mind as he's quoting this. Because I think that John remembers hearing John the Baptist say these words, because I do believe he was there, as we'll talk about in future lessons. Or I think he might have been there. I think that John the author remembers hearing John the Baptist say these words, and in that moment, he's like, wow, how true those words are. When John the Baptist is saying, behold the Lamb of God, he probably has in mind the fact that Jesus is that Lamb who is coming to wage war and win the war. And John, the author, says, you're correct. He is going to do that one day. But you are more correct than you could possibly understand because not only was Jesus the Lamb, and not only will He be the Lamb that will wage war, but Jesus is also the lamb that God provided as a sacrifice. He is the Passover lamb and he is the lamb through whom we achieve the forgiveness of sins. And I think the author has all those things in mind when he quotes John. And the reason I think that is because he has made it clear to us that he has handpicked these instances because he thinks that they have something to say about Jesus. And he wants us to recognize that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so let's move on. Let's see what else John the Baptist has to say about Jesus as Jesus just walks in. I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't do anything in this passage other than walk. This is the testimony of John the Baptist about the identity of Jesus, about the identity of the Word. Who is this man walking towards us? This is what John the Baptist has to say. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. This moment right here, this moment when John says this, when John the Baptist holds out his hand and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one of whom I said, This, oh, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I can imagine John getting choked up at this moment because this is him passing the torch to Jesus. For months now, John had been telling people of the one who was coming and who was greater than him, and at last, that person has arrived. 
For months, John had been saying, after me comes a man whose ranks above me because he was before me. For months, he had been saying, there is one who is coming who is greater than I. After me is one who ranks before me because he was before me. And now, at last, he can look and he can raise up his hand and he can say, this is he of whom I said after me comes one who is before me. This is the moment where John passes the torch. And I'm going to get back to our main point in a second, but real quick, I want to take a minor aside because this is something also that's significant to me and I think it has applicational value. I want you to look at John the Baptist and see how much God can accomplish in such a short amount of time. Because when we read in Luke chapter 3 that John began his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, we can estimate that that means that John the Baptist started his ministry roughly around A.D. 26 to 29, somewhere in there, between the years A.D. 26 to 29. Where you land on that will largely affect, affect your view of the chronology of the Gospels. But ultimately, what you need to know is that, interestingly enough, Jesus would go, to show, go on to show up later that year, and that event we are describing right now is only occurring months after John began his ministry. Right? So John the Baptist, he began his ministry, and a few months later, Jesus shows up. And then, later on, we read that John the Baptist died shortly before the feeding of the 5,000, or we learn that Jesus heard about John the Baptist's death shortly before the feeding of the 5,000, which would mean that from the beginning of the ministry to his death, John's, John's whole ministry, John the Baptist's whole ministry, was probably around or less than three years long. A three-year ministry. And beyond that, less than one of those was in the spotlight. Because like I just said, he, he was only preaching for months before Jesus showed up. He's preaching for a few months, Jesus shows up, and then he has maybe two years left in ministry. But we don't even know how long he was in prison before he died. So I don't actually know how long John the Baptist's ministry was. I know that from the moment he began preaching to the moment he died, probably about three years, maybe less. But from the moment he began preaching to the moment that Jesus showed up on the scene, it seems to be, based on my understanding of the Gospels, less than a year long. And that's remarkable to me. Because this isn't very significant. They don't mention it in the Gospels. This isn't very significant other than to testify to what God can do. John didn't start preaching until he was nearly 30 years old, yet see all that he accomplished in such a short amount of time. This isn't significant. The Bible doesn't mention the exact length of John's ministry. It doesn't mention the exact length of Jesus' ministry. These are just things that scholars have done research on to finally try to figure out the chronology of the Gospels. But to me, it's a significant detail just in general because we see what God can do in so short amount of time. Jesus didn't have much longer of a ministry than John. He started after John, and he died shortly afterwards as well. But here we see that in such a short amount of time, in less than a year, God can establish somebody who can pave the way for the Messiah. And this serves the point of highlighting that God doesn't rely on our work 
we rely on his. And what I mean is this, it wasn't anything about John the Baptist by himself that equipped him to be ready for the job of preparing people for the Messiah. It was God's work in John's life. I don't know about you, I don't believe that on my own I could just start a movement that would change the world in less than a year. That takes training. That takes years and years and years of training. John's 30 years old, and yes, maybe he was meditating in the wilderness for 30 years, but in less than a year, he got enough of a crowd together to where he could stand here and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and a bunch of them would start following Jesus. That's amazing. And it's not because of who John the Baptist was. It's because of what God was doing through him. And this isn't a main point of the text, so I don't want to spend too long on it. I just think it's interesting to note what God can accomplish in such a short amount of time. And so I want that to be motivation for us so that we have no excuse. I don't want us to stand before God in heaven and say, God, if you'd given me more time, I would have done so much in your name. He is the one in charge of time, and He gives you the amount of time you need. At the moment you die, you have had the amount of time that you needed to proclaim His name and go do those things. And what you've done isn't going to determine whether or not you get into heaven. That is a matter of faith. But don't we owe it to the God of the universe to do as much as we can? In less than a year, John gathered together this huge mass of people so that he could point them towards Jesus. Is that not what we're called to do as well? Every day, we should be striving to make Jesus known. And like I said, I don't want to linger on this too much. I just find it very interesting. Because at that moment when we stand before God and we could say, oh God, if you just give me more time, he'll say, how many years did you have? How much time did I give you? That's convicting for me. It's convicting to me because I want to make sure that I am as effective and efficient with my time so that I don't waste a single moment that God gives me. To see what he could do through John the Baptist in such a short amount of time is a great encouragement. Not because it doesn't encourage me to trust in myself because I know that in and of myself I can't do something like that. But through God, all things are possible. And so I think that we should lean on God and ask him for the grace to go out and give him as much glory as possible. But that being said, let's move back to the main point, because I don't want to linger on that too much. It's not even a main point of the text. The main point is this. John had been telling people that the one greater than him was coming, and at last the greater one had arrived. All four Gospels identified John the Baptist as the voice crying out in the wilderness. And so, even when some people mistakenly thought he was the Christ, he was quick to correct them that he was not the Christ, but was merely paving the way for the Christ. And at long last, according to his own testimony, after, one, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And at last, according to that testimony, that man has arrived. John did not yet know who this man was. He merely knew he was his own role as the voice crying in the wilderness. John didn't know who Jesus was. We're going to see that in a second. 
He didn't know who Jesus was. He only knew his own specific role. His role was to be a voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord to arrive. And at last, that moment has come where he sees Jesus and he can say, Behold, he has arrived. But this does raise a question, at least for me, uh, and I want to address it because you might be having the same question as well. How did John the Baptist know that was his role? You know, like whenever, whenever the, um, the congregation of people came up to him and started asking him questions in the last lesson, how did he know that he wasn't the Christ? How did he know that he wasn't Elijah? How did he know he wasn't the prophet? How did he know he was the voice? How did he know that was his specific role? How did he know that his way was to pave the one for the one who came after him, who was ranking above him because he was before him? How did he know that? And I think that Luke, in his gospel, actually gives us that answer. Because we read this in Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's Luke chapter 1 verses 5 through 17. And right there we read the account of the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. And I think that should answer for us how John the Baptist knew what his role was. Because as the angel tells his father here, he says, your son will be the one who prepares the people for the Lord's arrival. He will be the one who comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He will be the messenger. And so that gives us context to how John knew what his role was. From his early days of childhood, John the Baptist would have known his specific role in the kingdom plan of God because his parents would have raised him and they would have said, your role is specifically to give praise to another. Your role is to pave the way for one who is greater than you. The angel described John to Zechariah in words very similar to the words that were spoken by Malachi. As John the Baptist would be the messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord, who would prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant, the Messiah. He would be the one who came in the spirit of Elijah preparing people for the coming day of the Lord. And John therefore knew his specific role was to prepare people for someone greater. And that's why when he arrived on the scene, he could say, after me 
comes one who has surpassed me because he was before me. The way the NASB words it is this. After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John could know this because he had been taught it from a young age. Since before he was born, he was destined to be this person who would come and pave the way for the Messiah. From a young age, he was told that his purpose in life was to point people towards someone who was greater than him. The man would come after John, yet he had existed long before John. And thus John could say that he ranked high above him, surpassing him in might and authority and purpose. Yet even when he said this, John had no way of knowing how precisely true his words were. This is another place where John the author is quoting John the Baptist and saying, you don't even know how true your words were. Because you see, John the Baptist was but the voice, and Jesus was the Word. John the Baptist was the servant, Jesus was the king, John was created, Jesus was eternal, John was a man, Jesus was God. John the Baptist, he is saying, this person comes after me, he surpassed me because he was before me. He doesn't even understand how true these words are. Because this isn't the relationship of a, an employer and a boss. This isn't the relationship of a president and a vice president. This is the relationship of a lowly servant with the all-high God. And so in this moment, John looks out and he sees the one who he has come to pave the way for. For months John has been preparing people for this man to arrive. And now as Jesus casually strolls up, John can say, behold the man. This is the one of whom I was speaking when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And so we know how, G uh, how John knew that his own purpose was to pave the way for the Messiah. But that raises another question. As Jesus is walking up and John the Baptist sees him, how did John know that Jesus was that Messiah? Because if everybody knew that, obviously John wouldn't have to point him out. But instead, John seems to have um, certain information that nobody else has. So how did John know that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, John's going to tell us that. And what we read, this, what we read is this in verse 31. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So, by his own admission, John didn't know who Jesus was. This is, once again, the humility of John. A lot of the times, we like to act like we're the know-it-alls. We like to act like we're in the know on situations because we want to act like we're, like, important stuff. Uh, we want to know that we want to act like we know more than everybody else. But John doesn't do that. Right here in verse 31, he says, I myself didn't know him. He's admitting humbly, I didn't know that he was the Messiah for the longest time. Rather, he simply admits, he was just as clueless as everybody else. And I do want to clarify, this isn't to say that John the Baptist didn't know Jesus at all. Um, we also learn in the Gospel of Luke that they were related to each other, so most likely they knew one another. Um, John the Baptist right here is just clarifying that he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. He says, this is he who comes after me 
And he surpassed me because he was before me, but I didn't know that was him. But I did know that I came to prepare the way for him. So John didn't know who the Messiah was. He simply knew that his particular role was to prepare people for him, and he did so by calling people to repentance and baptizing them with water. So John says, I didn't know that he was the Messiah. I simply knew that my purpose was to baptize people with water until he arrived. And that being said, I don't want us to miss the fact that this is the climactic moment in John the Baptist's life. Notice that John recognized from the very beginning that his ministry was never to glorify himself. I already mentioned it. From young childhood, he would have been raised being told that he existed to be the herald of the Messiah. And that he himself was not the Messiah. His purpose from the beginning was always to pave the way for the Messiah to be revealed to Israel. And so what he had to do is he had to gather this, all these crowds together. He had to make sure Israel was watching him so that he could point them to somebody else. John had to put in the work to become famous. Not so that he could keep that fame for himself, but so that he could take that fame and point it towards somebody else. By his own proclamation, that is what his goal was. He came baptizing in water for one particular reason. That, when the proper time came, he would make the Messiah known to Israel. This is the climactic moment in, Jesus, in John the Baptist's life. And it's just Jesus strolling down the street. It's such a simple, simple moment, yet it changes everything. Because you see, all the crowds that John gathered, they weren't for his glory. All the baptisms that he performed, they weren't for his glory. All the sermons he preached, they were not for his glory. They were for the glory of the one to whom he pointed. He didn't exist to make himself known. He existed to make another known. And I think that's something that we, as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when I say we, I'm talking to all of us. Because whether you're in vocational ministry or not, you are in full-time ministry. I believe that we, as Christians, need to learn from John the Baptist here. Because I don't care how many sermons you preach. I don't care how many baptisms you perform. I don't care how many crowds you draw in. It's never for your glory. And it shouldn't be. If it is, you need to take a seat. All of it should be for the glory of Him to whom we exist to point people towards. That's what we should learn from John the Baptist. He didn't exist. The reason he wanted a crowd was not for himself. He existed, and he wanted that crowd purely so that he had an Israel to whom he could reveal the Messiah. He says, okay, I exist to reveal him to Israel. Well, guess I need Israel's attention. He didn't want the crowd for the sake of his own popularity. He didn't baptize people just so that his name could be known. Those are side effects. He did these things so that the name of Jesus Christ could be known. From the very beginning, John the Baptist had been building up a crowd and drawing people's attention and calling people to faith for one purpose and one purpose only. He had been doing all these things, awaiting the day when he would see a man walking towards him. 
and he would be able to hush the crowds. He'd be able to reach out his hand, and he'd be able to say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His entire life has been building up to this moment right here. This moment when he could reveal the Messiah to Israel. And now that moment has arrived and I don't want us to miss that because this is the climax of this man's entire life. He has been building up his entire life for this one moment. And now he gets to do it. And he does it humbly. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. I didn't know who he was, but now I know who he is, and that's him. And I can tell you right now, he's walking here, and this is the, this is the reason I exist. I have existed for this single moment to see Jesus walking down the road. That's what John the Baptist existed for. And by his own testimony, he did not know Jesus, and he only came to know Jesus later. So we still haven't answered the question. How did, G- how did John the Baptist know that Jesus was the Messiah? If he himself admitted he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah, but now all of a sudden he's telling people, here he is, we have to ask, what changed? What was the thing in between that took John from not knowing Jesus was the Messiah to John knowing that Jesus definitely was the Messiah. Well, he explains it to us right here. Verses 32 to 34. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to him, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So as John describes it, he saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and remain on Jesus. And in that moment, he knew for a fact that Jesus was the one whom was coming because God had personally revealed it to him that this is the sign that he should be waiting for. It's actually a very interesting um, little story there, right? We're not given much context. John says, I didn't know who Jesus was, but I saw the Spirit descending like a dove upon him, and God had told me that would be the sign for who the Messiah was, and so now I know who Jesus is. But this begs the question, what the heck is John talking about? Because this seems like a very random story that we have no context about in the Gospel of John. What's all this business with a spirit descending on Jesus? And how, in, how on earth does that like talk about Jesus being the Son of God? Uh, really, John tries to answer the question here, right? John the Baptist says, okay, I didn't know him. Which gives us the question, well, how did you come to know him? But then in his response to that, he actually raises four more questions, right? He says, well, I saw the Spirit descending, and I knew it was the Son of God. Well, now I have a whole other list of questions, and that's what we need to answer before we can close up this lesson. Uh, Because I have four questions in response to what John is saying here. The first question is this. When did John see the Spirit descending on Jesus? Second question. What does the Spirit descending on Jesus have to do with him being the Son of God? Because, if you remember, according to John, in this text, God, the one who sent him to baptize with water, told him that the person on whom the Spirit descends is the one who will baptize people with the Holy Spirit. Right? So, according to John, God told him 
that the one who the Spirit descends on, that's the person who comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's the Messiah. He's the King of Israel. But what on earth does that have to do with him being the Son of God? Because immediately after that, John's going to say, I testify to the fact that this is the Son of God. Well, how did you go from him being the Messiah to him being the Son of God? Because that's a big old jump right there, John. So that's my second question. How does the Spirit descending have anything to do with him being the Son of God? Third question, what does it even mean to be the Son of God? That's an important question. And fourthly, what does it mean to baptize with the Holy Spirit? So those are the four main questions I get from those three verses right there. Because I am like, whoa, what's going on here? I need to know more. John, how did you go from knowing nothing about who this guy was to all of a sudden knowing more than it seems to imply you should know? So let's answer those. Question number one, when did John see the Spirit descending on Jesus as he walked up to him? Right? Was it just now? Like, right here, whenever it says, okay, Jesus walking down, the sh- like, walking towards John, like, is that when John the Baptist sees the Spirit descending? Interestingly enough, no, that is not. Actually, this is another example of what we would call an undesigned coincidence. We talked about that a few weeks ago. This is an undesigned coincidence when two separate texts seemingly correspond in what appears to be an unplanned manner that actually sheds greater light on what is being expressed. You see, those familiar with the Synoptic Gospels will be familiar with the moment John's describing. Right? If you have read the Synoptic Gospels, you probably don't even need me to explain this to you because you're so familiar with the story that you didn't even notice the fact that John never mentions that he's describing Jesus' baptism. But that's what he's doing. You see, in the Gospel of John, we actually don't have the story of Jesus' baptism. Those are found in Matthew Mark and Luke. So if you're familiar with those, you might not have even noticed that John never mentions it, and so you might overlook the fact that you're missing out on a lot of context here because you take it for granted that those go together. But here, um, let's see, let me read from my notes real quick. You see, those familiar with Synoptic Gospels will be familiar with the moment to which John is so evidently referring to. Apparently, the event unfolding before us in the Gospel of John is taking place sometime after the event that kicks off Jesus' ministry in the Synoptic Gospels, the baptism of Jesus. All that being said, what we're seeing here, whenever Jesus is walking up, this is not the first time John the Baptist, it's certainly not the first time John the Baptist has seen Jesus because he's referring to an earlier moment. He's referring to the moment in the Synoptic Gospels when Jesus is baptized by John. Right? And we actually read that account right here. This is Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So here in Matthew, we actually have the account that gives greater context to the Gospel of John. Because John simply says, I saw the Spirit descending on him, and all of a sudden I knew that, that's, that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was the Son of God. But if you've only read the Gospel of John, you're still left curious as to what event he's describing. But Matthew gives us that answer. He says he's describing the baptism of Jesus. Whenever Jesus was baptized, 
Well, the Spirit descended on him. But not only does this explain the context of John the Baptist's statement, but it also answers question number two. What does the Spirit descending on Jesus have to do with him being the Son of God? Because you see, according to Matthew and Mark and Luke, as Jesus, uh, as Jesus was being baptized, the Holy Spirit came to descend upon him, and a voice came from heaven. And the voice said this, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Right? So we have the voice of God speaking from heaven, and it says, This is my beloved Son. And so that's how John makes that jump. Because according to John, in the Gospel of John here, he says that the one on whom the Spirit descends is the Messiah. But then, after seeing the Spirit descend, he says, I can tell you he's the Son of God. And you're saying, well, how did the Spirit descending all of a sudden clarify that? Well, that's because when the Spirit descended, a voice also spoke from heaven, and it said, this is my beloved Son. See, so it's a very, it's a, it's a small little detail that you wouldn't even pick up on if you read all the Gospels because you'd read them in that context and you naturally understand that. Right? So, not only did the dove confirm him that Jesus was the Messiah, but the voice of the Father speaking from heaven confirmed to him that Jesus was the Son. The connection here is actually evidence for the truthfulness of the Gospel accounts, precisely because the author John doesn't spell it out for us. You see, the illusion on the part of John the Baptist bears evidence to the fact that the author likely expects the readers to be familiar with the Synoptic Gospels. Right? So John, he expects people to be familiar with those Gospels, but it's also so clever and subtle that he certainly couldn't have fabricated the account for some futile attempt to fabricate a story. You see, the author of John doesn't need to explain how John arrived at the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. He is simply restating what John the Baptist said. He's saying that's just what he said. He doesn't have to explain to you what how John arrived at that conclusion. If he did, some could argue that he's trying to somehow make it to where the Gospel of John lines up with the other synoptic Gospels. But John makes no effort to do that. He's simply reporting what John said, and it's only by reading the synoptic Gospels that we understand how he arrived at that conclusion. So it's actually really brilliant how these work together to where it's not some evidence of forgery. right? Because critics will come along and they'll say, oh, the Gospel, you know, the gospel of John was just trying to be forced in with the other Gospels. It's so different and stuff like that. Or they'll, they'll go back and forth trying to come up with ways that we can demonstrate that the Gospels are false. But this is actually a little piece of evidence that demonstrates the validity of the Gospels. Because John doesn't try to justify what John the Baptist is saying. He's simply reporting it accurately for what he heard. And the other Gospels give us the context that help us understand how John the Baptist arrived there. And this is actually what Lydia McGrew has to say uh, about this particular undesigned coincidence. She could say it a lot better than I can, so I'm just going to read what she says. She says this, The Gospel of John begins by affirming at length and with much theological depth that Jesus is the only Son of the Father. John certainly wishes to teach that Jesus is the Son of God, but in all of this, neither in the preface nor in the narrative account of the words of John the Baptist does he ever mention the voice from heaven. In a fictionalized account, especially one from so theological a writer as John, this is an interesting omission. In a truthful account, it is not surprising at all. In fact, the hypothesis that provides the best explanation of the coincidence is the most simple-minded, 
the one that might seem the most naive, namely, that the author of the gospel recorded these words and attributed them to John the Baptist because that is the way that John the Baptist actually told the story. And the author of the fourth gospel knew what he said, perhaps even from hearing it himself. John the Baptist's words, including their inclusions and omissions, are readily explicable in the context in which they are set. Jesus' baptism has occurred, we can guess, about six weeks previously. Based on the Synoptic Gospels, we can conjecture that Jesus went away to be tempted in the wilderness and has recently returned. John the Baptist sees him upon his return and begins talking about him either to the crowds or to his own disciples or to both. Right, so right there, Lydia McGrew, that's from her book, Hidden in Plain View. I've talked about it before. I'm going to recommend it again. It's a great book that shows the validity of Scripture. But right there, she's just demonstrating that this little detail, uh, which is overlooked by most, it's hidden in plain view, this little detail actually gives us a lot of reason to believe that the accounts we're reading here in the Gospels are true stories. They're not just fabricated events because there's no evidence from the authors that they're trying to correspond with one another. They're just recounting things, how they happened, and the details line up independently of one another. So if the story of John was being fabricated, the author of John would likely have included the quote from heaven in order to ensure that his readers didn't miss the connection. Instead, he doesn't, and it's only in reading both accounts that we understand the full picture. And the full picture is this. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descended from heaven. And in that moment, John understood that Jesus was the Messiah he had come to point people to. And then a voice came from heaven, and it said, this is my beloved son. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist, his mind was blown because he realized this Messiah was a way bigger deal than he even understood. And so now, probably six weeks later, after Jesus has gone and been tempted in the wilderness, Jesus comes back, and in this moment, John sees him again. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I didn't know who he was, but now I know who he is, and I can bear witness, and I can testify that Jesus is the Son of God. And that leads us to question number three. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the Son of God? What does it mean to be the Son of God? And in truth, I'm not going to answer this question right now, because in truth, this is the question of the entire Gospel of John. In chapter 20, verse 31, the author tells us that this book has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so he is going to try to answer this question for us over the course of the gospel as a whole. So rather than trying to answer this question in a single lesson today, I'm hoping we will come to understand this answer as we study the whole gospel. From what we've seen so far, we can say this. If Jesus is the Word and Jesus is the Son of God, then the Son of God is somehow distinct from God and yet the same as God himself. This is building up the idea of the Trinity, which is a very fascinating thing to go into, and we will be talking about it a lot as we study the Gospel of John. Uh, Thus, we have two persons of the Godhead established, Father and Son. And uh, actually, interestingly enough, this is the first time we get our mention of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, This passage right here actually introduces us to the third person. So we have uh, John saying that, Jesus is the Son of God, and he's referencing the baptism where the Father declared him the Son, 
And then he also says that this is the one who came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So we have Father, Son, Spirit. And this is the first time that John's mentioned Spirit. So in this passage, we have the first mention of all three persons of the Trinity. And whenever you go to the baptism of Jesus, we have all three persons present. Jesus being baptized, Holy Spirit descending as a dove, the Father calling out from heaven. So for those, of, for those people who heretically believe that God is somehow, there's three different modes of God and he can only be one at a time, the baptism of Jesus breaks that idea. Because all three are present at the same time. It's three persons, one essence. Three persons, one God. But we're going to be getting into that. For right now, let's turn our attention to the Holy Spirit, because that's question four, and that's the last question we need to answer before we wrap up. I know this has been a long lesson, so let's try to get this over with. The fourth question is this. What does it mean to baptize with the Holy Spirit? Uh, This is something that we have John mentioning in the Synoptic Gospels, and then right here he says that Jesus has come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, when John saw the dove descend on Jesus... When Jesus himself was baptized with the Holy Spirit, he obviously came to recognize that Jesus himself was the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit, right? So um, you can see how John made that connection, right? Obviously, God had told him that would be the connection, but Jesus is being baptized in water, and then he's being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so you could see that John's like, ah, so that's the guy who's going to do it. Cool. But what does that even mean? What does it mean to baptize people in the Holy Spirit? Because notice how John described the Spirit descending on Jesus. He describes it as this. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. It remained on Jesus. Notice the word remain. Unlike the prophets and the people of the Old Testament, the Spirit did not simply come upon Jesus in order to depart, but it remained upon Him, foreshadowing that a new age was coming. You see, in the Old Testament, you hear about the Spirit of God coming upon people, right? And it would depart. It would come on and then depart, come on and depart. You see this with Samson. You see this with David. You even see this with King Saul. You see it like that. But right here, John the Baptist sees the Spirit descending on Jesus And he says, it remained on him. That's significant. Because this is showing us that a new age is about to begin. This is the one who has come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And when we hear John announce that Jesus would do this, that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit, we have the announcement that we have with that, the announcement that Jesus is coming to enact the new covenant. That's what the sign represents. There was an old covenant that we have in the Old Testament. But then when Jesus shows up and the Holy Spirit descends upon him and John knows this is the person who has come to baptize with the Holy Spirit, that is his confirmation that a new age is beginning. And that new age is beginning because a new covenant is going to be established. And the new covenant is defined as this in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36, we read this. God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So we have God through Ezekiel promising that people through this new covenant will be cleansed of their sin. They will be given a new heart 
to stand righteous before God. And they will be given a new spirit that they can live for God. And in Jeremiah, we read this in chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So through Jeremiah, we have the promise that this new heart will contain with it the law inscribed on our hearts. And this would be the Holy Spirit. We read this in Joel, chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. So right there we have the promise that a day is coming when the Holy Spirit will be poured out on people. And those who believe in God, those who are his covenant people, they shall receive that Holy Spirit, and through that Holy Spirit, they will be cleansed of their sins. They will be made new before God. They will be righteous before God, and they will be filled with his Spirit in such a way that the law is written on their hearts, and they can go out and live for him. That is what it means to say that you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that is what John is seeing that Jesus has arrived to do. And there's so much more we go into that, but I know this has been a long lesson, so I'm going to try to wrap it up. When John saw the dove descending on Jesus, there are three things that he knew. Firstly, he knew that this is the Messiah, the one who will be baptized, uh, the one who will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That was the sign that God had given him. Secondly, he knew that this is the Son of God the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And thirdly, he knew that a new age is coming, and with it, a new covenant. And I am so excited to announce to you that that day has arrived. Now, Jesus has died, he has resurrected, and the Holy Spirit can now come dwell in our hearts because of what Jesus Christ did. And thus, we can conclude in the final verse of this section, that John declares that he has seen and borne witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. John the Baptist has concluded his life's purpose. He has achieved his goal. He has finished the race. He has fought the good fight. He's passed the torch. Now it's time for him to take the back seat while Jesus steps into the limelight. And that's exactly what we will see. With John the Baptist's testimony having been concluded, the author will now turn our focus directly to Jesus. So that now we will get to see Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and his ministry, and ultimately, Jesus and his death. The Messiah has been revealed to Israel, and now it is time to see what he has to reveal. I'll pray for us. God, thank you so much for allowing us to go through your word. I know this was a long lesson, and I pray that if anybody listened all the way through, uh, they will have been blessed by it. If I was all over the place, I pray that they'll forgive me. But if it just reaches one person, God, for your glory, then it'll have been worth it. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your world. And I thank you so much for your word that came into the world. I pray that we will learn to place our faith in him so that your Holy Spirit can come to dwell in us 
so that we can be cleansed of our sin and we can go out and live the life that we could not live without it. For your glory, for your honor, for your praise. It's in your holy and beloved and precious name we pray. Amen.